Merry Christmas to you all. Welcome to Union Chapel and to the season of Advent. We're anticipating, we're expecting great things from God, and I, I trust that uh, your presence here today will be an encouragement to you. Welcome to you online as well. We know you're tuning in. Glad you've joined us. Merry Christmas to you all. I want to uh, just to say another word of, of appreciation and excitement for our event this past Wednesday. We had over 600 people on our campus that day, and uh, it, was a, it was a great event, and we're very excited about the story, which will begin the last Sunday in January uh, this coming year, and so thank you for, uh, for all of your support of that. Be sure and grab some materials on your way out today. Those are for sale. We're glad to, uh, to assist you with those. It's going to be a wonderful time to go through the, through the entire Bible next year in chronological order, and a deeper understanding of the Bible is going to be realized, so I know you're excited about that too. Today I want to uh, continue our thoughts about Advent, and our custom here at Union Chapel during the holiday season is to have short services, short sermons. Uh, you're welcome. And there, there's a lot going on and a lot of compression in our lives and busyness, and so uh, making it uh, crisp and clear as we possibly can is the idea. So today I want to talk about the miracle of Christmas, perhaps the greatest miracle of Christmas, indeed maybe the greatest miracle of all time in all of human history as we consider the advent of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, there are two places I want to read for us. The first is in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible, and we can see the origins of man there. And then from John's Gospel chapter 1, and verses uh, 1 through 14. So again, you can turn there and be prepared for it. All of this to make clear that in order to understand who Jesus is, we must understand the origins of the human race. And once we understand those origins, we can get a better picture of who this Jesus is, whom we serve. Our custom is to stand, to hear God's word. So we'll begin in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now that word naked, if you're from Tennessee, is pronounced naked. <laughs> I don't, didn't want you to get confused by that. And he said, who told you that you were Naked, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will crush your head and you, that is the devil, will strike his heel. Now over to the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 1, these first 14 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and in that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Finally, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, we got encouraged and inspired today through his word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me say it again. In order to understand who Jesus is, we must first understand origins of the human race. Now, we find that here in Genesis chapter 3. God created humanity. You are not the clone of aliens. There's a series now that's very popular on the History Channel. Perhaps some of you have seen an episode or two. It's called Ancient Aliens. We have people now who just are desperate to figure out where in the world have we come from? And so they speculate that maybe we're the clones of aliens. You are not. Neither are you descendant from a, some primordial pre-Diluvian race of super beings. It's another speculation. Neither are you the grandchildren of animals. No, you are not. You are the creation of Almighty God. Original man was created in a pristine environment to live with him in communion, unbroken joy. This is a place described as Eden, paradise, a perfect place. And in that perfect place, as we've just rehearsed from Genesis 3, sin entered into the human experience. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden as a result. It was a terrible moment actually more horrible than any of us can even imagine when God and human beings were separated by rebellion and sin. As they left the garden into a world, it was a world that they knew nothing about, nothing at all. They had left a pristine, perfect world, in perfect community with God and with each other. And now they have stepped into the world. They, they looked back and God actually placed a, an angel at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. They, they knew once and for all that their paradise had been lost. They could not earn their way back in. They couldn't negotiate their way back in. They couldn't create a religion to manipulate their way back in. They were sealed out and trapped in a world that was filled with disease and famine and tragedy, and murder, and war, and terrorism, evil of every sort, natural disasters. Uh, and just in the last couple of days, as you know, we have suffered, our brothers and sisters around the Midwest, horrible devastation from natural storms. A world where the very ground, the Bible describes, is now cursed. Life made difficult. 
life made painful. It was a paradise lost with no hope of return. So we understand the origins of human beings with this story. But even in the context of that loss, a promise has been given. It's the first uh, point on your outline if you're following that. There was a word. There was a word of hope, and we cling to it. It was the voice of God, and he said, and I'll put this on the screen for you. The seed of the woman will come and bruise the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. Very important. We, we sing this uh, song, O Holy Night, this time of year. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, but he appeared, and the soul felt its worth. From the Garden of Eden to the manger of Bethlehem, think about that timeline. Garden of Eden to the manger of Bethlehem, the world languished in a long, dark nightmare of the soul, uncertain, without hope, under a quilt, if you will, a cloud, a layer of dark, ultimate dark, desperately dark, uh, physical darkness, if you will, tangible darkness. Men and women uncertain of who they are, why they're here, where they're going. Longing for the seed of the woman. Words came from time to time throughout history between Eden and Bethlehem. A prophet would poke his head above the darkness, you know, just getting as close to God and trying to hear what God is saying to humanity. And then they would sink back down among the other humans of the world and say something like, he's a suffering servant. He shall be hated and despised and rejected. Thus saith God. And people would hear these prophecies and they would think, I wonder what that means. Other words came. He shall be a king. He shall be a prince. He shall be a great high priest. He will be a prophet of prophets. He will be the lover of my soul. He will make the desert to blossom. He's the rose of Sharon. He's the lily of the valley, the pearl of great price, the rock in a weary land, a husband to the widow, a father to the orphan. In Handel's great musical masterpiece, Messiah, he wrote from Isaiah, of course, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. But people paused and they asked, but, but what and when and who? Who is this person? There came princes, prophets, priests, and kings. The judges came. The period of the judges unfolded. They, they asked, is he a judge like Jephthah or Barak or Gideon or Samson? Yes, yes, was the response. He'll come as an avenging warrior who will set things right just like a judge, but not like any judge we've ever known. We looked at King David and we asked the question, will he be a king like King David sitting upon Israel's throne? And the answer was yes, he is a king, a great king, but like no king we've ever seen or ever known. We saw Moses as he extended this rod over the Red Sea and led the people dry shod from the bondage of Egypt. Is he therefore a deliverer? And the answer was yes, yes, but not like any deliverer we've ever known. The seed of the woman will come. He will come. Now we move to a point in history at the proper stroke 
of the divine clock at just the right moment, particular moment chosen by God in the time of humanity, a son is born. This is the second point on your outline if you're following along. We know that God in his unsearchable wisdom, he begins to cause stars or other heavenly bodies to align in such a way that their radiance is noticed um, by men who live probably in what is now modern-day Baghdad, Syria, Saudi Arabia, we don't know. They begin to recognize these unusual events in the heavens. They're looking for insights into life. These are not Jews. These are, these are pagans from another country. And yet they're studying ancient, ancient uh, writings, looking for a sign, looking for wisdom for the world. Somehow or another, they interpret that the seed of the woman, the hope of the nations, the desire of the Gentiles was going to be born underneath that star. And so they start their journey. It's an amazing sequence of events. To the west of Jerusalem, on the upper rim of the Mediterranean basin, a city which is so saturated in paganism, so vile, so degraded, so corrupted, it defies to imagine that God would do anything in such a place. Nevertheless, Caesar Augustus, in his perversions, his evil, his violence, all of which are notorious, he's a conquering warrior, merciless, cruel, depraved. Suddenly, this guy feels an impulse that the entire known world under his rulership and sway should all return to the village of their lineage. If your grandfather or great-grandfather were born in a certain place, then you should pack up your suitcase and journey there for the registration for a head tax. Not an income tax, but every person, rich or poor, returning to their place of family origin in order that no one be missed, you had to return to the village of your background. This command went out to the known world. People moaned, they cried, they complained. It would be expensive, it would be annoying, it would be a mess, but they had to do it because in order to be, in order to be alive in Caesar's world, you had to pay a tax. Imagine if every person in the United States on a day all had to be in their hometown. Everyone's going back home on that day. Can you imagine the cost, the confusion, the hassle? Unbelievable. At the same time, there's a young man named Joseph. He is a man whose life has been thrown into intense turmoil. Now, there is an understatement for you. He's a chaste man. He's an honest man. He's a decent man. He's a godly man. He's trying to live a holy life. He's fallen in love with this younger woman, this girl. She, he's gotten engaged, after which she announces that she's pregnant. There are, there are lots of things that this young man knows in his life, and there is one thing he knows for certain. No one else in the world knows it. No one else in the world suspects it. No one else in the world believes it. But he knows, and he's the only one who knows, that he's not the father of this baby. And it's hard for him. She claims it's a miraculous conception. It's a miracle. God has revealed to her his divine plan, and it's really confusing. 
He loves her. He's a gentleman. He doesn't want her killed. She could be stoned to death. I mean, after all, she's pregnant out of wedlock. He says, uh, no, just let her go away and have her baby. He knows the whole town is laughing at him, mocking him. You know, there's no fool like an old fool. So here he is. And then he has this dream. An angel appears to him in a dream. And the angel says to him, go ahead, Joseph, and marry that girl. The child really is God's. Which is a really poignant dream, powerful dream, probably really shook, shook, his, shook him up. But as you all know, if God speaks to you in a dream, the biggest problem is that you wake up in the morning and no one else has had the dream. Wait, I had a dream and God told me, yeah, never mind, because no one's going to buy the story. So he agrees to marry the woman after the birth. They agree not to consummate their marriage until after the baby is born. So there's no confusion. And then comes this order from Caesar Augustus. And he loads his little fiance on a burrow and he travels south up to Jerusalem through and out to a little, a little village named Bethlehem, eight miles out of town, a suburb of Jerusalem. And he, he, uh, he follows the rules. He's doing the best he can. It's still uh, an order of magnitude of the confusion he's experiencing. <laughs> but there they go. Now, most people want to tidy the rest of the story up at this point. This is the birth of Jesus. And we want, to, we want to paint it in pastel colors, you know, and picture it from the Middle Ages. But the fact is that these two kids, one walking, the other sitting on a burrow, are unrecognized, they are uncelebrated, they are unwelcome. Imagine the demeanor and attitude and spirit of everybody else in the country who are all having to travel back to their hometown. Everybody's ticked off. Everybody's surly. Nobody wants to do it. They are lonely. They are confused. They are away from home. They're spending the night in a dirty corner stall behind a cheap motel. There's no room in there. Then labor pains come upon them. Of course. Why not? And without the benefit of midwifery, only the hands of her husband to help, with the cattle watching, she gives birth to an insignificant baby in an insignificant village and an insignificant foreign country that is subject to the women will of some reprobate named Caesar Augustus in Rome. It's not a good day. However, within the next few hours, these guys appear. They're shepherds. They have a story. They say we were tending our sheep and these angels appeared in the sky and told us to come here and worship this baby. Which they do. And within the next few days, these well-dressed dignitaries, wise men from the east, from other countries, bring these expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and they, they announce we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I'm sure when they left, Mary and Joseph looked at gold, frankincense, and mirth, all of absolute intrinsic value, and they think, what, what could, what could a, a, a couple like us possibly use with all of this money? Some more money than we've ever seen, and now we have it. Not knowing, of course, that they would be exiled to run from the slaughter of all the babies, male babies under the age of two in Ramah. They have to run to Egypt 
And now they have the funds and the means to sustain them through those days. Joseph had to wonder. Gold, gifts, angels, dreams, shepherds, wise men. Who the heck is this kid? Something's going on. It's an amazing moment. Now, what I've just told you is not news to anyone. That's the story. That's the narrative. That's, that's what we recognize from our rehearsal of the story over the years. But the question now is, what does it mean? What does it mean? That's the story. Now, what's the theology? Would you permit me to teach just a few minutes? May I teach just for a moment? The third point in your outline simply says, Jesus, the incarnate word. Back to John's gospel chapter one and verse one and verse 14. See them again. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word, and then verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, this is very, very important. This is theologically significant. This is, this is a cornerstone upon which all of Christianity rests. This is what Christians believe. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It's not a theological construct. It's not a hopeful image. But it is a recognition that God has come to us in the flesh. This is the magnificent mystery that Satan, for example, and all his lethal hatred for humanity could not and did not calculate. Let me put this statement on the screen. Here's the point. If you've not been listening up to this point, join in. Here's the point. If you don't plan to listen to anything after this, here's the point. Are you ready? The great miracle of Christmas is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's, a, it's a massive miracle. And if it's true, and I believe it's true, it changes everything. Absolutely, positively, undeniably, everything and everyone for the rest of time. If Almighty God who made the heavens and the earth condescended, stooped down, lowered himself all the way down to the dirt and made of himself a human being, put on an earth suit in order to redeem us. That's an amazing story. That is a remarkable miracle. And that is exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, this whole idea of incarnation comes from a Latin word for flesh. When you get up and leave here today and go to Puerto Varda for lunch, you may order something like chili con carne. If you order chili con carne, you're ordering chili with meat, with flesh. So Jesus is God con carne. <laughs> I've just made it so that every time you go to Puerto Varda now, you'll think about Jesus. You're welcome. The incarnation is one of the most spectacular miracles of history. Not half man and half God. This is some Greek mythological aberration. 
Rather, he is altogether human. He's a real baby. So don't tidy it up. He's needy on one end, noisy on one end, and dirty on the other end. It's a real baby. You know, we sing Away in a Manger. Away. And the children sing it. It's beautiful. It's a little mystical song. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. Got it. Verse 2. The cattle are lowing. The baby awakes. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, the implication of the song is he's a baby, okay, but he's not a real baby. No, it's the wrong impression. We had two kids crying they made. You've, you've raised kids. They're noisy on one end. They're dirty on the other end. And that's the way babies are. And so it was crying he made. Yes, this is a real baby. It's made, it's, it's made real and made raw and made true so that we could get in touch with the humanity of Jesus. Look at this statement. I'll put it on the screen. It is in the humanity of Jesus that we, covered in our own humanity and everything else, I best identify with him. This is how we relate. Think about this. God became a man. Why? Because he wanted us to understand who he is. Jesus said out loud, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's God like? He's like Jesus. He is Jesus. This is an amazing miracle. This is an amazing connection point. Now listen, I'm willing to take on some aspects of Christian theology and doctrine uh, with some give and take. I'm, I'm willing to uh, see things nuanced a bit in Christian doctrine here and there. I can't equivocate on this one. No, no. I believe Jesus Christ, the historical figure of the first century, is the word who was preexistent and co-eternal with God, spoken into a human body, incarnate form as the word of God, not as a prophet, not as a priest, not as a king, but all of those and God himself in human form. 100% God and 100% man. And just a reminder, Christianity is based on this one great truth. So, you, so stand there, stand there, hang on to that. The immaculate conception of Mary and the incarnate word of God in Christ is the only hope for our salvation. Jesus never ceased to be the word. He never presented to us to be less than flesh. Always God and always a man. In every way, Jesus was a man, subject to the same appetites, desires, weaknesses, temptations. He was altogether human. And at the same time, he was altogether God. Now, why is that important? What does that mean? It means he is the one and only answer to the human condition experienced since the paradise that was lost in Eden. He's the answer. See, Satan had taken possession of the fallen sons and daughters of Adam. He's been in control of this world. He's the Lord of this world. The only thing that could get them back was for the righteous to die for the unrighteous. The only way that God could purchase us back to redeem us and to restore us in our relationship with him is for someone righteous to die for all of us rebellious ones. We cried out, whom shall we send and who will go for us? Who shall find the blessing of Abraham? Who will find our posterity for us? Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring these blessings? And David wrote prophetically in Psalm 24, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. History 
time and again and again asked the question, who? We said, oh, oh, we need a prophet. Wait, prophets have sins. That won't work. Or we said, we need a high priest. Wait, no, a high priest must first intercede for himself. Or we need a king. That's right, we need a king like David. Hold it. David, the greatest of all the kings, committed the sins of adultery, conspiracy, and murder. So who will go for us? Who will stand in our place? Who will intercede for us? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And Satan laughed at all of that because he thought they'll never, ever find a perfect human being, a perfect sacrifice. Now look at this statement on the screen. What Satan, not the angels, not humanity itself, not even the woman in the Garden of Eden could understand was the prophecy, the seed of the woman will come and bruise the serpent's head the serpent's head. They could not comprehend that God would be willing to send his word, his own son, into the world through the womb of a virgin teenage girl to be born into humanity to suffer every temptation known to man save without sin. Couldn't comprehend it. Jesus had to be able to sin in in order to qualify as sinless. It's an important theological point. This is crucial if, if Jesus was not capable of sin, then he's not available for your salvation. Just say it another way. Perfection can only be achieved where imperfection is possible. This is why the blood of animals was only a temporary fix. Animals are morally neutral. Therefore, an animal sacrifice always fell short of this ultimate requirement. Jesus being fully capable of every sin of humanity. Ego, pride, lust, violence, evil became the perfect sacrifice by overcoming all of those sins. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, our temptations, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So in his sinlessness, he proved the perfect sacrifice. And in his ministry, he proved who he was. Let me remind you. The demons would cry out to Jesus when he was on the earth and confronting these demons and other, and other persons. Jesus, son of David, have you come early to persecute us? They would cry out for within a tortured soul. And Jesus would say, be quiet and come out of them. The legions of hell began to identify him. This is the seed of the woman. The one promised, this is the prophet, this is the priest, this is the king, this is the word, this is he. God knew the murderous impulse of the satanic mind could not resist the opportunity to kill him. If they could identify him as God, God knew that Satan couldn't resist attacking him and trying to kill him. Let me ask you this question. What has Satan always wanted? What is his highest objective? Why did Lucifer, the son of the morning, fall from grace all those eons ago? He fell from grace because he wanted to take God's place. He saw himself as so important, so spectacular, that he should rule the universe. And so the only way that Satan knew that he could accomplish that is if he could kill God. If God can be killed, then I can take my place. This has always been the satanic impulse. It's basically the satanic impulse that fuels the philosophy of atheism. It's happening in our world right now, especially in the Western cultures. The non-Western cultures in our world are experiencing a move of God. 
You knew that, right? I've reported that. Amazing numbers of people are coming to Jesus Christ. Uh, even secular reporters, now I just saw, saw this on YouTube uh, a week ago, that they're reporting that literally millions of Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of visions and dreams that they're having. They're seeing Jesus in visions and they're coming to faith. Amazing activity of the Holy Spirit around the world. But the non-Western cultures of our world experiencing a move of God now look at the United States and the Western cultures and go, you people have lost your mind. You folks are nuts. You're so self-consumed that you can't see the obvious. And of course, atheism and, and accompanying political philosophies of communism, socialism, uh, following in its place. This is all a satanic impulse. At the very root of all of the divisiveness and the distrust and the ruination of our culture that's going on right now, you know, and it's really not good. As you push it down all the way to the foundations, it's an attempt, a simple attempt to exclude God from the consciousness of people. And the, and the lie is if you can get rid of God, you can be like God yourself. It's the great satanic lie. Utopia will come. If we'll just make it fair and equitable for everybody all the time, it'll be a perfect world and all will be well. It's a lie. It's a lie. And it's a, it's a destructive lie. And it's not a new one. It's been rehearsed many times before. It's the satanic mindset. So atheism, for example, which is getting traction in our culture now, is I would like to kill God with a knife or a gun, but I can't. So I'll kill him with my thoughts. I'll just argue that he doesn't exist. And there I put him to death. I simply deny his existence. Therefore, he is not. It's satanic. That's the root of it. So here is the perfect Christ becoming more and more revealed and even sinful humanity starting to catch on. Peter says one day when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And then he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And, and Jesus looks at Peter and says, no man revealed that to you. God did. Satan's listening into that. And he goes, I know who this is. I know who Jesus is. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one I tried to kill in Egypt when Moses was born, when all the babies were killed. This is the one I tried to kill when I inspired Herod to murder all the babies, all the male babies under the age of two in Rama after the birth of Jesus. This is the one who I've been fearing and dreading, and now he, he is here and in my hands. The satanic, murderous impulse now invades and fuels the ego and the pride and the jealousy and religiosity and power mongering of the Jewish high priest, the Sanhedrin. King Herod, Pontius Pilate, and, ultim and ultimately all the Jews of Jerusalem themselves to have him murdered. They, the crowd cried out, crucify him. They drag him to the cross and Satan says, this is my last chance to kill God. God has made a mistake now. He has visited humanity as a human and now I've got my chance to kill him and I've got him. But behind all of it is that there had to be a sinless sacrifice and someone to do the deed. This statement on the screen now. When the sinless died for the sinful, when the perfect died for the imperfect, 
Our redemption price was paid. Yes, it was. This is the seed of the woman. This is the miracle of Christmas. This is the firstborn of the resurrection. Now ready to receive all of us who accept him by faith and acknowledge his sacrifice for our sins and our redemption and our eternal hope. This is why we gather. This is why we string lights. This is why we celebrate. This is why the children sing. This is why we come to adore him because he's king of kings, the word made flesh, and now our redeemer king. Glory to God in the highest. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Do you feel it? So do I. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory of the only begotten son of God filled with grace and truth. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is revealed as the suffering servant, as the light of the world, as the way, the truth, and the life, the prophet, the priest, and king. It is for him that we waited. And so we thank God he has come at last and we are redeemed at such a great price. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is the miracle of Christmas. He who has an ear, let him hear. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word, which lamps our feet and lights our way. We thank you for this, this powerful, eternal truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we thank you for the incarnation, that you have revealed yourself in your son, Jesus. And now he reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords and our only hope for salvation. So we look to him today with thanksgiving and gratitude. And we celebrate in this season his coming, his birth. Glad tidings of a great joy, which is for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said... Would you stand with us?